like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In each episode of this podcast, I look at some of Philip K. Dick's writing and give my comments on it. This episode will be beginning what I am sort of thinking of as the second season of of the Philip K. Dick Book Club. The first season covered his works of the 1950s, and there were a whole lot of them, like over 90 episodes. And some of those were multi-part episodes on the novel. So there's a lot of works there. Now we're moving into the 1960s, so I thought it'd be... A good time to refresh, throw up a new bumper, and acknowledge that we are really entering into a new phase in his career. In the early 1960s, Dick was moving away from writing science fiction. He didn't write that much sci-fi at all, really from 1958 until, until 1962. He was working on writing mostly non-mainstream fiction, novels about suburbia. These are novels that would mostly be published after he died. Uh, and you can read most of those now. I, some may have been lost, but you know they're they're in print now. And I, I actually haven't read them. I'll get to them later on in this this podcast. It's only in 1962 that he you turned to science fiction because he wasn't selling his mainstream novels. And the first novel of this kind of new era it is The Man in the High Castle. And this is it's I guess it's science fiction. I don't I don't know. I I guess that's how people label it. It's it's an alternate history, but it's really a novel about reality and how we understand reality, how we interact with it, and how we know the world we live in and the things around us are real. And this theme permeates pretty much every page of this novel. Yeah, it's got kind of its twist ending and it's got its kind of overall the plot line of whether this world in which the Axis won the Second World War is a real world or not. That's over everything, but even in the small details and in the, the little moments this question of, of how can you know what's in front of you as advertised as real or or whether it's fake, it, that's the theme that runs through everything. And in this way, it's it's a very focused novel and it, 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 it doesn't sprawl. A lot of Dick's novels from the 1960s have this kind of thematic sprawl that can be a little frustrating for readers. Works like The Simulacrum are just a bunch of ideas thrown on the palette and then kind of roughly constructed into a novel. And there's a couple other that, that fit that. This novel is actually a pretty tight, tightly fit together thematically because everything comes back to this idea of what is real and what is fake. And if you look at it that way, it makes this novel a little bit easier to, to digest. Now, when we're done with The Man on the High Castle, we'll, we'll look at his other stories and novels of the 1960s. And it, there's about 18 short stories, and I think there's 15 novels. So that's going to be the material of season two of this podcast. And then in the in season three, we'll then finish off his career by looking at his works of the 1970s, the 1980s, exegesis, and, and then his mainstream fiction. So this, in many ways, is the culmination of a lot of ideas. 
he was working on the 1950s, but he also throws away a lot of ideas. And for instance, one thing that right away we learn that he's kind of tossing out is the frontier. How is the frontier represented in The Man in the High Castle? We'll be able to talk about that in this episode. Very, very different from how he talks about it in the 19, in the 1950s. Reality. Well, so in the, the shifting realities is something that comes up in some works of the 1950s. And we looked at three of them, the time on a joint, Cosmic Puppets and Eye in the Sky. And in those you had, in Eye in, Eye in the Sky, it was personal subjectivities that make makes the world different, look different to everyone. And Time Out of Joint was really a political necessity uh, that forced the government to create a false reality to achieve some concrete political goal in respect to one person. And then Cosmic Puppets, it was gods doing the manipulation. When you start to get to works like The Man in the High Castle and especially Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldridge, it becomes less clear what's going on and what is doing the shifting. So it gets much more metaphysical and more philosophical in that sense, that really the, the reality is something that can't be grasped very concretely, as it can in those earlier novels. I mean, the, the real world is still there. It's still got a foundation. The, these novels that you start to get in the 60s don't have that anymore. You know, in some case, in some cases, there's a real truth, like in the penultimate truth, the reality is is there. But more and more often, it becomes less. It's less. It's less grabbable. It's something we can't really hold on to narratively, and so we come out of these novels a little bit more anxious, a little bit, a little bit more frustrated, depending on your point of view on on how Dick deals with these things, and it just gets, I don't know, more, more meta in its way it deals with with shifting realities. That's not the only thing Dick's going to do in the 1960s, though. He's going to have a lot of interesting things to say about mental illness, about institutions, about automation. Of course, that's sort of an old theme of his. About religion, about drugs, about suburbia. So in a lot of ways, he's, he takes new steps forward thematically. And um, even when some of those ideas were played with early in his early works, they come out in new ways in the 1960s. So it's not just a break professionally the early 1960s, it's a break intellectually. And I, I think Dick's really in a new place in, you know, by 1962, by the time he wrote The Man in the High Castle. So with that introduction out of the way, I think we can, we can jump into this novel a little more concretely. Published in 1962, The Man in the High Castle presents us a world, on the surface at least, in which the Axis won the Second World War. And the world we're presented with is quite brutal. Um, Africa, much of all of Europe, and the eastern part of the Americas, especially the United States, is controlled by Germany. And they're engaged in kind of a mad modernization rush. And they are also completing their genocidal plans against minorities, trying to eradicate all remaining Jews and eventually black people in Africa and other, in their view, racial uh, racial undesirables. The Japanese have established their greater East Asian coast prosperity sphere over the Pacific. That's really the heart of their domain. They also rule China, and they rule the east, the western part of the United States. And their rule is on the surface much more benign. They're very much obsessed with, with foreign cultures, especially kind of American uh, antiques and and Chinese literature and philosophies like the I Ching plays a major role in this book. So they're presented on the surface as a much more benign rule compared to, to Germany. Many people make these, these contrasts. 
Now, our characters are set in various places in the United States. It's a very disparate novel in that way, even though I think it's thematically quite tight. It's, its characters are kind of all over the place, and there's a lot of them, and they're all kind of doing their own thing, and they don't always interact very much. So this is something that Dick's going to do a lot in his 1960 novels, where I have different characters kind of doing different things in a certain world. And thematically, they'll be tied, but, but they're not really necessarily... There's not always a plot. And, and I think the plot of this novel is sometimes hard to grasp. There is one in a sense, but there's always these kind of little side quests. And, you know, that, that I guess Dick's novels in the 1960s often have that feel of a lot of side quests going on, right? There's characters doing this and characters doing that. And, you know, you kind of have to think about it and, and sit down and, and kind of put it together. What, where, are these, where are these different plots going? Some works are more plot heavy. But this isn't this isn't one of them. It's more kind of an exploration of a, of a particular idea about false realities and and what's true. And how do we determine what's true and can we determine what's true? And, and what we learn by the end of the novel is that we really can't know what's true. Right. The, the world we live in may be false, but what's knowing what's true then is hard to get at me. Even if you can identify something as false. The, the truth may just may, may be elusive. There's not that kind of groundedness. There isn't that reality you had in the eye in the sky. Like you have to get through these false worlds before you return to a real world. That's not in the man in the high castle. So in this setting of a World War II where the Allies lost, it's set in the 1960s, so it's set in, in contemporary times. And so the, the Nazis and the Japanese have been, in, have been ruling the world for a long time by this point. I think the world... The, the war ends in 1947 in the novel. So for almost 15 years or so, the Axis had been in charge. And so they had enough time to really recreate institutions, recreate power structures, to implement a lot of their, their plans. And it's really the, the Nazis who have the ambitious plans, whether they're genocidal or really they're these massive public works projects. And we'll get examples of those later on, just because I think they're kind of interesting to look at. And I think they, they suggest something of what Dick's point of view is on the big project on like the big public works and on the kind of the gargantuan nature of a lot of government kind of ambitions. Um, but that I guess that, that's enough introduction to this novel. I mean, many of you have probably read it or seen the show or seen the show and then read the book. Um, so there's going to be a lot of opinions about this novel. Um, and I, I don't know. I'll, I'll try to give my, my take on it. I, this is a, a bit of an intimidating work to, to comment on as one person because there's so much that people are going to miss if they go in. And I'm acknowledging right now I'm going to miss a lot. I'm not going to have time to get into every point. And in fact, I was rereading the first chapters of this novel, and I thought, this almost needs like one episode a chapter, right, where I'd have to go through almost line by line. I, I'm not going to do that, but there's just so much in every page that, that speaks back to the major theme of the novel um, and gives insight into how he sees what Japanese rule would have looked like or what the Nazis would have done had they won. Or what his view on the frontier is. It, it, all these things come up again and again and again. So it's, it's really, really rich. And with less of a plot, it, it becomes a bit hard to, to talk about. But I'll do my best. And I really hope that, that you engage me and respond. And, and so we all get a full picture of, of this novel, The Man in the High Castle. Okay, so as the novel opens, we, we meet our first character. His name is R. Childen. And he runs an antique shop. It's called American Artistic Handicrafts. And he's getting 
the store ready for the day. He's sweeping, he's getting the money ready, and he's looking at the... It's in San Francisco, too. And he's just getting the store ready for the day. And he gets this phone call immediately from a man named Mr. Tagami. And Mr. Tagami is high in the, the occupation government in the United States. Well, what was was the United States? Now it's a, a part of the Japanese Empire. And he is demanding an update on an order he made for a Civil War recruiting poster. And we learn through Childen's internal monologue that the Japanese are are obsessed with these kind of American antiquities. They're not things that Americans would, would want. And much of his client base are Japanese who are interested in these old American artifacts. And there's a lot of different things he sells and he gives recommendations to different customers of, of what he could give to people. So you get a sense of the kind of things you're interested in. They tend to be interested in kind of these historical artifacts and old kichi things, right? At one point it's even like a Mickey Mouse watch is, is talked about as really being a precious and antique, right? And what's going to happen with this whole theme? Why are we talking about antiques in a novel about the Nazi and Japanese occupation of the United States? Well, it, it's back to this theme of what is real, right? Because this is a great example where Dick can play with this question of, of what is real or not, because that's always a question you have with an antique, because an antique can be faked, right? Things can be fake old, right? And people can buy tables now that are fake old. People can buy jeans now that are fake dirty even, or, or they're cut up. So they look old, but that's on purpose, right? It's certainly true with antiques. And, and that's a question that's overhanging all these antique dealings. You know, how much of this stuff really survived and is really authentic and, and, and what's not? And Childen, as the runner of the antique store, doesn't even, isn't always adequately prepared to answer some of these, these questions. But right now it's just about he wants this thing for a gift. He has a visitor coming. He needs to present a gift to him. So he says, I, he admits, I couldn't get it. I, I tried, but I couldn't get it. And then Tagomi, very rudely, very in a very authoritarian way, says, I don't have time to wait for that anymore. Just get me something else. What do you recommend? And he, he gives different ideas like a butter churn, uh, ice cream maker, that kind of stuff. And he basically, Tagomi eventually says, like, get what you want. I, you know, I'll buy it. I need something for, for the gift. And he says he'll come back at two o'clock to, to pick it up. We learn also based on this conversation, that there's a thing called the code, which seems to regulate how Japanese and, and Americans interact. At one point he says Togomi's talk barely kept up with the code or barely keeps the code. And later on, you had this. Uh, Togomi says, a substitute then? Your recommendation, Mr. Chel Dan. End quote. Um, well, Togomi deliberately mispronounced the name. Insult within the code that made Chil Dan's ears burn. So you have to be polite, I guess, is the idea. That's part of the code. But by mispronouncing Chil Dan's name on purpose, you know, by emphasizing the, the second syllable, Togomi was able to, to level a bit of an insult towards, towards Chil Dan. So with Tagomi off the phone, he goes back to work and a young man and young woman, both Japanese, enter the store. And again, you get the sense that most of his customers are Japanese. And Childan is very interested and excited to talk to this young couple. He, the woman is very attractive. He, he seems to sort of like these younger generation of Japanese, the ones who weren't kind of, like, kind of were born early in the war or after the war. He, he, he seems to 
appreciate them more and they seem to appreciate him a bit more they're they're less authoritarian like some of the older japanese are so he has some fondness for them he imagines that they live really in kind of the new exclusive apartments in san francisco so they probably have a lot of money that's what brings brings them there and they're interested in buying some of these antiques and artifacts and here's what dick writes about children's impression of these japanese young japanese I guess subjects was right where I guess it's still the emperor. Quote, their eyes warm not only with human bond, but with their shared enjoyment of the art objects he sold. Their mutual tastes and satisfactions remain fixed on him. They were thanking him for having things like these for him to see, to pick up, to examine, handle perhaps without even buying. Yes, he thought. They knew what sort of store they're in. This is not tourist trash, not redwood plaques reading Muir Woods, Marion County, PSA, or funny signs or girly rings or postcards or views of the bridge. The girl's eyes especially, large, dark. How easily children thought I could fall in love with a girl like this. How tragic my life then, as if it weren't bad enough already. The stylish black hair, lacquered nails, pierced ears for the long dangling brass handmade earrings. End quote. And, and then he, he, he's, he, talk, he banters with them a little bit trying to make a sale, of course. But in that passage, I think you see a couple things going on. One is... I mean, we're back to this theme already of, of impression, right? It's hinted at with the whole introduction of an antique shop. But here we get maybe our first concrete case where there's this question of like, does someone as they present themselves, this young, beautiful, attractive couple, you imagine they're nice, you imagine they're wealthy, you imagine they have nice tastes. Is, does that match the reality, right? And it's something we can't know. There's a gap there between the perception children has as a man running a store, looking at a customer, and maybe it works both ways. And then you have the added kind of cultural uh, crossover, right? The, the cultural uh, inequities, right? And then, of course, the Japanese have a superior status in America. So that's going to interfere with how perceptions are worked out. We also have a little bit of children being enamored with the looks of this Japanese woman and her style. And it's a bit... He, he kind of buys into the ideology that sustains this unequal power structure. He's a bit of, I don't know, it's kind of a term I don't really want to use, but he's a bit of Uncle Tom here in terms of the occupation. Other characters won't be, won't be so enamored with the Japanese. Now, as he's talking to him, he, he thinks more about who they are and where they come from. And this is his internal monologue. Pride showed on his face, not the military, not one of the gum-chewing boorish draftees with their greedy peasant faces wandering up Market Street, gaping at the body shows, the sex shows, the shooting galleries, the cheap nightclubs with photos of middle-aged blondes holding their nipples between their wrinkled fingers and leering, the honky-tonk jazz slums that made up most of the flat part of San Francisco, rickety tin and board shacks that had sprung up for the ruins even before the last bombs fell. No, this man was of the elite, cultured, educated, even more so than Mr. Togomi, who was, after all, a high official with a ranking of the trade mission on the Pacific Coast. Togomi was an old man. His attitudes had formed in the war cabinet days. So we learn it's not just any Japanese that Childan seems to be fascinated by and enamored with. It's the ones that are most likely to be his customers. So he actually makes a distinction between kind of the, the day-to-day kind of Japanese occupiers who he sees are peasants, that they're into kind of vulgar crafts pleasures. These people are educated and sophisticated and young. And he has a lot of hope in this kind of younger generation of Japanese uh, elite. 
Well, then after this introduction, he starts to just show them what he has and he makes different recommendations. Everything from a New England table to a mirror from the early 19th century to WPA posters and murals, liquor cabinets from the 1920s. Uh, so, you know, he's just a regular antique salesman showing his wares. And again, when they leave the store, they don't buy anything, but he does take their name and, you know, you know he's hoping to make an appointment to see them in the future. He says, or Dick writes, joy, if all business days were like this, but it was more than business, the success of his store. It was a chance to meet a young Japanese couple socially on the basis of acceptance of him as a man rather than as a yank or at best a tradesman who sold art objects. Yes, these new young people of the rising generation who did not remember the days before the war, even the war itself, they were the hope of the world. Place difference did not have a significance with them. It will end, children thought, someday, the very idea of place, the governed and the governing, but not governed and governing, but the people. Now, what we have here a little bit is him accepting one of the conceits of, of empire. And I think this maybe goes back to maybe the Roman Empire when I think it was it was Augustus Caesar who granted citizenship to all people in the empire, not just who weren't slaves, not just Romans, right? So in the Republican period, it was just the Italians who had that citizenship. And later on in the empire, everyone got it. So place didn't matter so much. And you had a much more kind of multicultural empire coming out of the, the post-Augustus period. And other empires, too, who try to navigate these different ethnicities and try to establish a, a more a broader identity, right? An empire tends to do that. And that's sometimes seen as the dangerous empire that suppresses individual identities and national subjectivities. But other, for other people, it's really the promise of empire that it, it lets us transcend our, our, our nations and, and be part of something greater than us. And that's what he dreams. That's for him the solution is kind of a, a world that's much more unified, you know, where we can get beyond this idea that, you know, we won the war and we're going to dominate you. Their names, by the way, this couple, Kasura, it's a Japanese name, but she actually goes by the name of Betty. So she's taken a, an English name. And I don't know this, quite the significance of that, because usually it's, it's, it's from a position of power by which people have to take a, a local name, right? If you can keep your your birth name, it tends, you tend to be in a position of, of more authority. It's like uh, ESL teachers in, in Taiwan always force their students to take English names because it's easier for them to handle than, than Chinese names. Now he's kind of falling for this girl Betty already, and then he, he's, his do, he's already, his hopes are dashed, right? It's, it's possible for Japanese men to date white women, it's, or American women, Yank women, I should say, but it's not really possible for for Yank men to date Japanese women. And plus she was married, so no hope there. So he pretty sad about that. Now he starts to think about what he's going to do about Mr. Togomi. And he comes up with different different ideas. But he doesn't really come to an answer. And he, he, he lights a marijuana cigarette. So marijuana, I guess, is legal. And post-World post War II, Japanese-occupied America. So with that, we move to a second setting, and this is on Hay Street. So he's also in San Francisco. He's, the, the man that, we're, that we meet is Frank Frank, and he is very much in contrast to Childen. We met Childen up and ready and at work already 
you know, an early start. Childen is 11.30 and still just getting out of bed. So he's much more bitter uh, about the Japanese occupation and the loss of the war. He he really can't, like Childen, look to the future with any optimism. He's more in kind of a survival mode. He wants to get out. He wants to get away from Japanese occupation, but he's, you know, he can't go east because that's where the Germans are. He thinks maybe there's kind of a buffer zone in Colorado where people can kind of live on the periphery. Uh, so a degree, this kind of frontier dream is there, but it, it's more kind of the center of America rather than the, 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 the broad west. For him, he wants to go east, but he can't go too far east. But still, it's under the control of the, the PSA, which is the essentially the Japanese empire. So the other thing he's really depressed about is that of the fact that he he just got fired. Um, he made a mistake at the factory the previous day. He worked at a, f uh, a factory run by a guy named Mr. Wyden Matson. Uh, said something to him and got fired and he'll probably be blacklisted. And so now, even though he has a skill, um, skilled at making jewelry and things like that, but you know, he really can't do much with, with that anymore. So he's, he really doesn't have a career in the future. So he's going to have to go and change his work category if he ever wants to have any hope of getting a job again in any profession. So he's got all these bureaucratic hurdles he has to jump before he can hope of having a career again. And, and we feel the frustration of, of bureaucracy felt by Frank. Children doesn't Children's working individually with his customer, so he doesn't have that same kind of bureaucratic burden. But Frank, as a worker who's just been fired and has to deal with that, and you know, who does he talk to? How does you know? Who does he talk to the occupiers? Does he talk to the puppet white government in Sacramento? He's really frustrated. So that's when he starts to dream. Maybe I just go out to Colorado, you know, kind of away from it all, far you know, farther from the center of, of Japanese rule in America. Making things difficult for Frank is it's revealed that he's a Jew, um, which means he can't move to much of the United States. Uh, he can't move to the South. He can't move to the Nazi-occupied areas because he's a Jew. His original name was Frank Fink. He had served in um, in the war. He ended up on the West Coast. He was even though he was born in New York City. He ended up on the West Coast because that's where he was when the war ended, and he couldn't return to to his home to his East. So he has since he's hated. The Japanese even buried his weapon, his service weapon, underground in, in, in a basement, hoping someday maybe he could relieve it. So he has a lot of resentment built up from the war. So he's not, unlike children, he's, unlike children, he's not coming to terms with Japanese occupation. Now, the, one of the main reasons he hates the Japanese so much is because by winning the war, they basically ab aborted any of his dreams for his life. And he had all sorts of dreams he had, and he, he goes through them all in his mind. But none of these dreams are relevant anymore. So the, the reality has come crashing down on him. And it's it's made him basically a poor, exploitable, expendable member of the working class. He also had to suffer other abuses and slights, such as his landlord, Mr. Amuro, was a very cruel and indifferent and landlord who kind of ran slum housing for a lot of former service members after the war. And he had to deal with that. Now, this landlord eventually had his head cut off by the Japanese, which is, I guess, one br a little bit more evidence we have that the, the Japanese occupation was a little bit more benign. This Amuro, his old landlord, was executed for, for profiteering from the occupation. 
But the most important thing in this chapter, perhaps, is how through Frink's mind we get access to the differences between the Nazi and the Japanese-occupied parts of the United States and the, the plans that both systems, because like, we have two main systems, it's kind of a bipolar world. And of course, Dick's writing this in a bipolar world with the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, so he has some foundation for this. There's a model for this kind of bipolar polar world in, in his own world. He listens to the radio and he's hearing this kind of propaganda from the Japanese government. You know, quote, Coast prosperity civilization must pause and consider whether in our quest to provide a balanced equity of mutual desires and responsibilities, coupled with remunerations, we have not failed to perceive the free, free area in which the affairs of men will be acted out, be they Nordic, Japanese, Negroid. And that's a bit of the speech on the radio that we get access to. Frank or no, what we learn from this, of course, is that maybe the Japanese don't have the, the racial ideology that the Nazis have, that they, they do envision the possibilities of kind of interracial or intercultural, interethnic cooperation in this project led by the Japanese. And this is the language of the greater East Asian cold prosperity sphere that was actually implemented and thought through during the Second World War. But in contrast, the Japanese haven't done that much with their occupation. It was actually the Germans who were taking these leap forwards and trying to progress. But they progressed recklessly and in kind of in a crazy way without a clear plan or without a clear goal. It's just go forward because that's where we go. And the best evidence of this is this pushing out into space. Quote, by the time the Japs got the first spaceship off the ground, the Germans would have the entire solar system sewed up tight. And they're just entering out, creating these empire, these colonies out into space. And it's not clear what the purpose for that is, except outright expansion. And I think this is some of the first evidence we have that Dick is really changing his mind about the frontier. Because the frontier becomes kind of banal. It doesn't have that kind of restorative, this, this goal of remaking humanity you, you see in some of his stories and even some of his early novels where the frontier really becomes a liberate, something liberatory. Here it's just an extension of a very brutal and cruel state power. And we also learn that the, the other side of the Nazi experiment and futurism is, has been the, basically the total genocide of all African people. And it's just referenced here as he thought about Africa and the Nazi experiment there and his blood stopped in his vein. Right. We learn a little bit more about it, but it basically meant that the, the, the Holocaust was passed on to Africa and, you know, the Nazi goal to eradicate all, the, all Africans from the world has been going on. Uh, Ghost of the Dead Tribe dimension here. Um, and what are they replaced with the people of Africa? Replaced by automatons and rebuilding Africa into I guess a modern economy, but with no people, just machines. Now, since this book is so much about commodities, it's, it's interesting that when he's thinking about the Nazi experiments, what the Nazis did in Africa, he thinks about commodities. He thinks about transform, transforming humans into commodities. Quote, the first time, or the first technicians, prehistoric man in a sterile white lab coat in some Berlin university lab, experimenting with uses to which other people's skulls, skin, ears, fat could be put put to yar hair doctor and new use for the big toe see one can adopt the joint for a quick acting cigarette lighter mechanism now if only hair croup can produce it in quantity end quote so we get a lot of of in this chapter a lot of brooding about the nature of the world 
uh, through the frustrations of Frank Frink. So with this frustration, he turns to the I Ching, the Book of Changes. Now, the Book of Changes, if you don't know, is... Now, I heard somewhere that Dick actually used this divination tool to help write this book. Um, and he had to make certain decisions for him. Now, the problem with the I Ching is it's, it's a divination tool, but there's a lot of space for interpretation there. So the way it works is there are 64 hexagrams, and each one corresponds with a Chinese character or a concept or an idea, and there might be some text with it. And so what you do is there's different methods for, for determining which hexagram you use. There's 64 of them, so I think you have to do eight different operations. And you can flip a coin eight times, I guess, to get it. Or what Frank uses is the more traditional way of using yarrow straw. So you kind of do some, I, I'm not really sure the method, but it's something with you pass the straws from one hand to another. And based on how many are in one hand versus the other, you can kind of eliminate certain hexagrams. And then you throw those straws away and then you kind of divide them again. And then maybe it's because you divide them if you have an even or odd. I, I'm not quite sure how the method works, but that's the method Frank Frank uses, which is the more traditional method. And he asked the different questions. He asked the questions about, like, maybe how can I get my job back? He says, how should I approach Winda Metz in order to come to decent terms with him? That's the first question. And he gets the hexagram 15. And he didn't think that was a very good answer. It wasn't going to help him very much. And then he goes and asks another one about his wife, Juliana. And Juliana we're going to meet later on. And so we learn he's got personal frustrations as well with his, with his wife. And this Dick here connects through Frank these kind of very personal anguishes to this new emerging global system based on Nazi rule and Japanese rule. Quote, busily he maneuvered the yarrow stalks, his eyes fixed on the tallies. How many times had he asked about Juliana? One question or another. He came, here came the hexagram brought forth by the passive chance workings of the vegetable stalks. Random and yet rooted in the moment in which he lived in which his life was bound up with the other lives and particulars of the universe. The necessary hexagram picturing in its pattern of broken and unbroken lines, the situation. He, Juliana, the factory on Ghost Street, the trade mission that ruled the exploration of the planets, the billion chemicals leaped into Africa, which are now not even corpses, the aspirations of the thousands around him in the shanty warrens of San Francisco, the mad creatures in Berlin with their calm faces and manic plans, all connected in this moment of casting the yarrow stucks to select the exact wisdom appropriate in a book begun in the 13th century BC, a book created by the Chinese sages over a period of 5,000 years. Winode perfected the superb cosmology, the science codified before Europe had ever learned to do long division, end quote. And then he gets the hexagram, goal 44, coming to meet. And then here's where the, he here's where the book of changes really becomes one of personal subjectivity, because you get this term, and then how you interpret it is kind of open. It's kind of like tarot cards in that way, right? Like death doesn't necessarily mean death. It may depend on the context and the question asked and what the psychic says. So there's a lot of, it, it's more of a tool of meditation and thinking about your life and, and guiding your, your perception of things, maybe helping you think about things in new ways. So sitting on his bed now, not knowing really what to do, he thinks about the divinations he did and he thinks about Juliana and and that brings to the end chapter one so all of everything I've talked about has is, is only been in chapter one so far so chapter two opens we meet Mr. Tagomi and he's also consulting the book of changes the I Ching 
for his own purposes. Now he's got a business meeting um, with Mr. Baines. And based on his divination, he realizes it's important to avoid politics. Now, Mr. Baines is a Swedish person, and but he's got all these issues about the Jap, about the German side of 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 the world that he has to deal with. And so his dilemma is how much how to be political or not. And he goes and looks at one of Baines' speeches that was in the was in a clipping of the New York Times, and he studies it, trying to find out as much as he can about this person. He has to. He has to meet with and trying to find different clues. Then he goes, talks to um, his secretary, Mrs. Mrs. Ephraim Kian, and asks for the tape recorder and she brings it in. And he records in here like a record of his eaching divinations and one of which was, will the meeting between himself and Mr. Chilton later be profitable? And the result was a bit ambiguous, right, or unbalanced. So he, it's, I'm not clear how he interprets it at that point, but it's not a clear, positive answer. So um, after this, uh, Mr. Ramsey comes in, and I think Mr. Ramsey is just like a, a local white collaborator of, of the Japanese government, and he, but he, Togomi seems to trust him and takes his advice and asks him how he should handle Mr. Baines. And he worries that Mr. Baines just uh, maintains kind of the Nazi attitudes towards Asians that they're inferior and he thinks well, maybe I can you know show him some of Asian culture and They'll buy it and then they'll accept us as equals And then he thinks well, it's not our job to convert I, I just found this kind of interesting because I, I live in Taiwan and you find a lot of people here who Who don't want to really talk about politics or their political system or any problems, you know that exists kind of socially or, or, or kind of institutionally here, but they, they, kind of, they kind of want to woo you with their culture, right? With, you know, they, they, when you first come here, they're like, oh, let's go to this temple or don't, don't you love Chinese food? And it, it's very much like they, they try to sell you with culture, not with having a better system or a better set of ideas or a better social system. You know, if, you know one of the best things about living in Taiwan has been kind of universal uh, single pair of health care. It's, it's not the food really or the temples. But they, they never really sell you on that when you first come. I just found that kind of interesting. Now, another thing we learned about Mr. Ramsey is he's darkening his skin. And here's another important point in which the question of fake and real comes into play. Togomi asks him, you sir have an American ancestry, although you have gone through the trouble of darkening your skin color. And Ramsey explains that he does it by skin lamp for acquiring vitamin D, but that he still has authentic roots. And with with white people and Togomi, I mean it seems he's darkening his skin to look more Japanese that's kind of the implication we have here but he he covers himself saying no I'm still true to my 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 ethnic foundations and you know we're going to see other characters especially characters who kind of hide their Jewish identity who are also not presenting a true self to to the outside world so then he goes talks more specifically about this meeting with children about this kind of antique that he's going to pick up. At the one hand, the I Ching tells him that this won't be a fruitful meeting. But on the other hand, the, the I Ching also reports that Baines will accept whatever gift is given. So he, he's trying to decide whether to go forward with the Chilton mission or to maybe give him some other product. And then we learn why this meeting is taking place. Baines is a representative of, of the, basically the plastics industry in Sweden and the Pacific 
is trying to get in into that and the big German conglomerate, IG Farb and all these Nazi companies are still around in this book. You know, they are, they kind of have all the patents and they're kind of closed off to it. So he's going to the Swedish representative with hopes that, that he can get a hold of some of these patents and technologies and methods so it can be implemented in, in the Pacific. But there's some aspect of this meeting with Baines that's not being talked about with uh, this this um, Ramsey. And Togomi tells us through his internal monologue, quote, but his underlying question, one which could never relieve to the Pinnocks fitting about the trade mission offices, had to do with the aspect of Mr. Baines suggested by the original coded cable from Tokyo. First of all, coded material was infrequent and dealt usually with matters of security, not with trade deals. And the cipher was the metaphor type, utilizing poetic allusions, which had been adopted to baffle the Reich monitors, who could clearly who could crack any literal code, no matter how elaborate. So clearly it was the Reich whom the Tokyo authorities had in mind, not quasi-disloyal cliques in the home islands. The key phrase, skim milk in, in his diet, referred to the pinafore, the eerie song that expounded the doctrine, things are seldom what they seem, skim milk masquerades as cream. And the I Ching, when Mr. Tokomi had consulted it, had fortified his insight, its commentary. Here a strong man is presupposed. It is true that he does not fit in with his environment, insomuch as he is too brusque and pays too little attention to form, but he is upright in character and meets with response. The insight was simply that Mr. Baines was not what he seemed. End quote. So Togomi realizes that he's probably a spy. Now, there might be other reasons. He doesn't seem to be what he appears. But this this line from Pinafore, right, this things are seldom what they seem, skim milk masquerades as cream, is is kind of the core, the, the skeleton key to unlock this whole novel, right? Because nothing is what it seems. Everything has got this kind of level of fakeness to it, whether it's people darkening their skin or Jews pretending to be Protestants or the entire world not being what it is at, at the most meta level. So Childen then, so the next section is Childen. And uh, that brings us to the end of chapter two is the goings on of, of Childen, the other side of this meeting that Tagomi's worried so much about in the first part of the chapter. He leaves his house and he wants to go to the Nippon Times building. And he spent, he reports that he spent this whole day trying to find something for Mr. Tagomi to satisfy him, some kind of antique. He had been, and he finally found a volume one, number one of the tip top comments from the th comic books from the 30s. So he found a, a really rare and expensive comic book. He gets in a cab, and the cabs are run by, by Chinese, and the Chinese are always called chinks in, in the story, unfortunately. In, in a way, uh, Dick here talks a lot about class and a lot about inequalities structured into these societies. And so I think it, it makes sense to do it. It's just unfortunate that I have to use that word. Um, class actually runs throughout this whole description. We learn a lot about the fact that slavery exists in this world again, that there's intense kind of ethnic hierarchies. Now, the Japanese talked about kind of overcoming these, but in reality, they, they very much exist on the ground here. So that's another kind of reality and presentation dilemma that that's here. There's all kinds of controls. Um, 
So, quote, German or South ships docked at the ports of San Francisco all the time, and blacks occasionally were allowed off for short intervals, always in groups of fewer than three. And they cannot be out after nightfall, even under Pacific law. They had to obey the curfew. But the slaves unloaded their docks, and these lived perpetually ashore in shacks under the wharfs above the waterline. None would be in the trade mission offices, but if any unloading were to begin taking place, for instance, should he carry his own bags to Mr. Tagomi's office? Surely not. A slave would be found, even if he had to stand waiting for an hour, even if he missed his appointment. It was out of the question to let a slave see him carrying something. He had to be quite careful of that. A mistake of that sort would cost him dearly. He would never have place any sort again among those who, among those who saw. This term, those who saw, I mean, there's so much importance of perception, right? Even to the point that if there's slaves around, you can't be carrying your own bag because that shows you of a lower class. Now, Childen kind of reflects on something that Frink was thinking about earlier on, was just this kind of mad rush to the future, this kind of these crazy plans and plotting of, of, the, of the Nazis and how they had actually been achieving some of their most dr dramatic goals about racial purity and Lebensraum, living space in the East. It says what the Slavs have been rolled back 2,000 years. The Jews and the Gypsies had been eliminated. Uh, the Slavs have been pushed all the way back to the heartland in Asia. And then he talks about Africa because he was thinking about slaves and black people have been re-enslaved across the world. But um, he, we get a little bit more details on what the plan had been there. Uh, and he just says they had simply let their enthusiasm get the better of them there. But you had to admire that the more thoughtful vice would have cautioned them to perhaps let it wait a little bit. But it seems they've accomplished largely their goal of, of eradicating the people of Africa. Later on, he calls the plan almost successful. The final solution to the African problem is how it's described. But another plan that Childen is kind of impressed with is Project Farmland, which was the draining of the Mediterranean Sea and turning it into massive farms. I don't know why all these massive farms are needed for tillable farmland if the Nazis are achieving this dramatic population reduction. Um, but there it is. And, you know, he Childen is smart. He, he realizes that he can't really blame the Germans for doing this because the Americans did the same thing, just much less efficiently. He says it took Americans 200 years to eradicate the indigenous people of the Americas. The Germans are doing all this much more quickly. And he talks about the flights to the moon and, and Mars and, and all this and just these 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 dramatic plans to remake the universe in in the Nazis' image. So it, it seems they're fulfilling their ambitions, even to the realm of colonizing space. But what we don't have from, I guess, from either side of the occupation is any reason for these goals, except for, you know, just for expansion for its own sake or growth for its own sake or draining the Mediterranean because you can do it, eradicating the people of Africa because you can do it. There just doesn't seem to be a purpose to any of it. And that, that's, I've read this a couple times, several times actually, and I yet to see the purpose of any of these plans that are described as the heart of the Nazi plan for the world. And then he thinks back to how he got his start. And we learn a little bit more about his fascination and his, his love for the Japanese and their culture. And it has to all to do with him getting his successful career off the ground. He was running a, a, a kind of an antique store, but it was in a bad neighborhood and he needed to have bars on the walls and he didn't have any customers and it wasn't doing that well. And it was into that, into that store that walked a man named Mr. Major Ito Humo as an ex-army man. And he is the one who basically inf 
taught him or helped him learn that it's the Japanese who are really going to be the market for these antiques. It's not going to be Americans anymore, the defeated Americans. And in a sense, it makes some sense because why would the defeated people want to have nostalgia over the past? I mean, maybe the American South is an example of where a defeated people, you know, look back at the past with nostalgia, but usually you don't do that. But it's the conquerors who then look with nostalgia on the people they conquered and the culture they took away. It's the same way that, you know, white America looks back at Native American culture with a bit of fascination and curiosity. And maybe even they'll find an ancestor of their own that's an Indian if they squint hard enough. And then they can say, ah, see, it's it kind of it, it, it atones for the conquest in a way or on a psychological level. It's like, oh, but I love your culture, right? I may have wiped out your, sold your land, wiped out your people and, you know, massacred you and... Yeah, all that, but deep down, we're, you know, we love your culture. Uh, and, and anyways, that's what he learns from this soldier. And so they have this conversation about the things he's look interested in. And he, Humo, this major, says that he talks with his friends about these kind of old uh, artifacts and antiques and things from, from America. And even saying things like we collect bottle caps, American bottle caps and things. So that's when he learned that that he could really market his antiques to the Japanese to make a profit. Now, he thinks Childen thinks that the client that Tagomi has is Japanese, someone like Mr. Humo. And so that's what his whole intention of, of, of preparing this was to meet Japanese tastes. In reality, we, we already know that it's a Swedish man um, that that's meeting Mr. Togomi. So another again, another perception reality um, break. Anyways, chapter two ends with him going to the building, nip on time, so he can have this meeting with Mr. Togomi in offices on the 20th floor. He finds a slave who's willing to be his porter. I guess willing is the wrong word. Finds a slave who has to be his porter. And then he goes up to his meeting with Mr. Togomi. So that is chapter two, and I'm already at 50 minutes, so I think I'm going to stop now. Um, at this pace, it's, I'm going to probably going to need about seven episodes to cover the Band on the High Castle, but so be it. I'll, I'll take the time it needs. So thank you so much for listening to my comments on, I guess, just the first two chapters, the first only 30 pages or so of the Man in the High Castle. It's a really fascinating book. I, I don't want to say it's my favorite Philip Dick book. It's, it's not even close to that, but it's really one of his more interesting and philosophically fascinating works. So I urge you to, to read along with me if you haven't yet looked at it. Again, I'm not going to be talking about the TV show at all. I don't haven't watched it. I have really no interest in it. So I'm just going to be talking about the book. But if you do have comments about the TV show, I'd love to hear them, um, even if it you know, even if it's an encouragement to watch it, I don't know. I don't know. I can't promise I will, but I'm, I'm way too busy. But I would love to hear what you have to say. So um, with that, thanks for listening again. I'll, I'll be back next time with another two or three chapters of The Man in High Castle. I'll try to be a little bit quicker, but this is the kind of book that you it's almost worth going through line by line. Um, now, once it kind of the plot and the place is established, maybe we can go a bit faster, but um, I'll take the time I need. So thanks again. I'll, I'll see you next time where we'll look at part two of my review, my comments on The Man in the High Castle. You must
Contentment forever If you're 